reporting live right here in Southern Humboldt at Richardson Grove. We're at the Regenerative Cannabis Conference. It's Livewire. This weed right here represents the people that are here, and it's something that blows your mind. My mind's blown right now. We came from the Emerald Cup just last month, and we're here surrounded by really magical human beings who have uh, just given me a new impression on what cannabis culture really is. Shout out to our series sponsors, Savage Farms and Redwood Roots Family. Without you guys, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you to the Southern Humboldt Business and Visitors Bureau and the rest of our sponsors that are on board for this project. And what we're doing is we're highlighting uh, aspect of our culture, uh, operators who are just as magical as this weed that I'm puffing. And what I can say for these next three days is it's gonna be packed with just raw uh, character, cats who never conform to the system, have lived uh, in the woods, not like as what you might think, you know, just growing a beard and not having a brain behind it, but something like kind of the opposite, like the brain grew first and then the beard. So uh, we're in for a hell of a ride. What a beautiful way to start the year. Thank you, uh, Josh, uh, with, with the conference, and uh, let's go. Just like I said last year, I'm not known as a regenerative farmer. So, I mean, I'm biologically friendly, but that's, this isn't my forte. And so a lot of times, if I don't think I belong at, at an event, I'll go as, a, as, a, as a, a guest, but not as a speaker. But like last year, they said, hey, we want you to work on what you do. And this year was the same thing, is what, you know, what can I bring a value to the show? And so the, the last year has been pretty interesting in, in all kinds of ways, good and bad. But the industry's evolving, and it's evolving globally. And the, the part that was really positive was that in, in all these countries that I got uh, contracted to go take a look at projects, it was amazing how many groups were really looking towards regenerative ag. And in so many of the countries that aren't heavily industrialized, it's actually their normalcy. It's, it's how they function already because you can't get inputs. And so for so many of these farms in, in, in America, Central America, South America, um, they're already working with developing their own inputs that they grow and then ferment and break down. Um, the biological system of cultivation for those people is how they're gonna move into growing cannabis. And so it was really interesting because so many of those, I'm in the jungle with a Honda generator powering up a satellite. So on a laptop, we could take a look at all the people that I point out in these groups for who they should follow and where they can get reference information. Because see, I get brought out as more like an integrator where because I built a series of businesses and supply chain, it, it kind of lets me see the business different than most of the people I deal with. And so people would bring me out to take a look at their big picture. And in the big picture, we would start to find, you know, where do they need guidance and who do they look to? And for so many of these conferences that have been put on in these forums, it's a lot of the people that speak at these events and people that attend the events that I refer them to. So this way, what it does is it allows me to introduce people to people that I think are really sharp at what they do. And then I do what I do. And what I do is, is I try to understand the, primarily the market. I try to understand what is it that people are asking for and how do we get that product to the people and how do we produce it in a way 
that's most efficient and biologically friendly. And in some places, you can't utilize the technology. And like I was working in Israel, and Israel was interesting because it, it, it was, it's mandated that there can be no production involving uh, anything from an animal secretion, animal derivative, or anything derived from something that was previously alive. And it was, a one, it was one sentence. So when I go to these countries, I have, them I have them translate the documents and I have them send me the entire regulation package. And then I read the regulation package and I try to understand where are, where's their movement? Where can you make good choices? And Israel was interesting because of kosher. And so because of the fact that they're extremely restrictive on what they take in their bodies for uh, cleanliness, they have extreme restrictions on what they can grow cannabis with. And I think that as we go forward over time, they'll be able to start to change those parameters and they'll be able to say, look, this input is what we would consider clean. And they then be able to certify. But when it came to you know, biological pest control, no, no PGRs, same, same standards that we have in terms of, of fungicides, insecticides. So all the, the natural methodologies that we use in our own production here, they use in, in Israel also, but it has to be a chem delivery system. There's no way around it, period. You, you're, gonna, you're gonna grow cannabis in, in Israel, you're, you're squirting a, a, a soluble salt through a, an injector. There is no other method allowed, period, or you're illegal. And the problem is, is that you, you screw up, you lose your license, and game over for you. And so the only, the only place that, that, that I saw that was there. But it was fascinating because when I was in Israel, 30% um, of the population age 20 to 40 consume. It's the largest group of consumers in the world. And even though they had no full legality, I've never seen cannabis accepted to the degree it was there where every restaurant you went to, people were firing up. The waitress walks up and smokes with you. The waitress comes back with her own weed and smokes with you. And I'm serious. And it blew my mind, but it was, they, they were so adult about the reality of cannabis because their, their lives there are so intense due to their geography and the century, millennia of conflict that the people of that 20 to 40 age group, they're just like, screw it, we're gonna smoke because it helps us feel better. And so their acceptance of the product was so different. And the, the desire to move forward into what they see as this you know, North American cannabis culture, which was fascinating because we really created a, a really interesting culture that was viewable on the internet. And so for a lot of these groups that have been doing this historically, they're not publicizing what they do. They, they don't have the same ability to move that message the way we did because for whatever reason, we just, we just really embrace the net to push it. And so it's really interesting because what it does, it, it allows you to be able to really be, I don't say leaders, but inspirational for so many people. So all the travels that I did over this last year to look at all these projects, to work on TC labs, to work on marketing, genomic development, biological assistance, so many of the people were so aware of how many people are involved here and they knew your names and they followed you on IG and they, they were emulating as many practices they could. And so that's, that's phenomenal because I think at first when, 
we were all trying to understand how we're going to move into the new realm. I think so many of us were afraid that we were just going to get steamrolled completely because the technology was going to take you out. But they found the bottom line is that high-grade cannabis is really hard to create without a biological bottom end. That no matter what you do, the plant doesn't build the bioprotection and pick up the nuances for experience in any salt-grown situation. And, I'm, and I look at so much cannabis that it just holds true. And for so many of these other nations that are popping up, for so many of the operators that are native, local, they, they want this type of culture. And for so many of the companies, they're getting the shit kicked out of them so well that it's forcing them to have to bend because the bottom line is they can't get market share if they're delivering product that doesn't hold you. So they can sell you product once, but they can't sell it to you twice. And so what you're seeing is this, this really interesting reality where unbelievably funded companies that were gonna take over the industry had to back up and they had to rethink the approach and you're starting to see people come in to weave biologically based methodologies in with high tech. And some of the stuff, you know what's tough now is that for most of the time that I've been doing what I'm doing, I can say whatever I want, do whatever I want. But the problem now is I get to take a look at operations that are extremely expensive to build and I have to sign NDs. So you got NDs all over the place, which means you can't really talk about some of the stuff. So I have to kind of generalize some stuff. But the point is that the technology, like new lighting techs, vertical tech, airflow tech, um, using um, extremely high resolution so they can do temperature evaluations of plant uh, material so you can start to see trouble spots in gardens, the ability for um, Every, every company I take a look at now has their own on-site laboratories so they can do chemotype analysis, turf analysis, and then leaf analysis so they can steer their programs to optimize these directions. So you're seeing tech used nonstop in every aspect because primarily most of the people that got into cannabis were in tech. Because cannabis can't get a, in the U.S., can't get any type of loan, it has to come from private capital and the technology industry is the ones that had that trillion dollars in cash. So they were holding about a trillion in, in straight paper that they were holding and they figured, hey, if they can get more than so many percentage points in an investment in weed, it's better than in putting it into another account. And so they all got into cannabis. And, and I have to talk to a lot of these, the, the guys that own the money of the company and explain to them that you're not in tech, that you're not selling a, a future that the cannabis is a, is a product that you have to sell in order to make money. And so I think you can compare what you've seen in cannabis to really like the, the whole tulip frenzy. And me and Swam were talking about it the other day, the elusive black tulip, where it was, they, were, they were putting futures on plants that hadn't been created for prices that were so unbelievable. And it worked for a while until it collapsed. And that speculative future in tech works. And in tech, any technological advancement is a massive competitive advantage. And so that's why you see the people pouring the money into these facilities so heavily, because in their background, huge infrastructure investment, incredible amounts of IP are what they know and it's what they do. But the problem is you can't force the plant to move at your pace. 
and you can't force people or animals to move at your pace. And so those three things to me have always held constant where people, plants, and animals, they have their own pace. And when you push them past the pace, you break them. And you end up failing dramatically because of it. And so, so many of these operations I look at, I get brought in by the owners to basically vet the operation. And you're, they're always almost without a question, they're on their seventh cultivator. I mean, the turnover is unbelievable. And a lot of it too is because the, the cultivators that come in don't understand the fact that the people who put the money up expect to get paid. It's not a science project, it's, it's not a hobby. They want their money. And they need you to, to actually execute and work. And it's hard for people that are in cannabis to, to integrate with that group because their expectations and time frames and way of behavior is so different culturally than ours. And it, it creates some real issues for both groups. And so every time I go to any one of these, one of any of these meetings anywhere I go, I look around the room and I look for the person who looks the shittiest. And I go, you're the money because they're always the ones that look like they're gonna lose their minds because they're afraid they're gonna lose all their money. And they all got into cannabis because they thought it was a new industry that was gonna expand and explode. And that's okay. We want the industry to expand. We need it to be accepted or otherwise we, we don't have any opportunity ourselves. And the situation was that I think for so many, everyone believed that when this made the change, we were all going to suddenly become, you know, a little mini, little mini kings in our fiefdoms. But it, it's not how it works. Most of the people I meet that are in cannabis are angry that they're 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 not going to be able to be in Tahiti, and and be a farmer. And I'm like, well, you're not really a farmer. You're you're a landowner, and the people working your job are farming. And what we're seeing is that the only people who are really going to succeed are people who actually grow their own pot. Because that's where you make your real money as wage and you make money as profit from the operation to reinvest in the operation. But you get paid pretty well to be a farmer. And you're in control of your life still. And even though we have to work under the metric system, which is a, a tracking nightmare, and the distribution's a nightmare, and the lack of storefronts is a nightmare, the, the main point is that as farmers, we can all work and basically run our operations. And without these major companies exploding, there is no comparison. You don't have a comparison and contrast. You can't have craft if you don't have commercial. It's impossible. You, they, they're, they're, a, they're a comparative phrase of each other. And so the, the larger these companies get and the worse the product they push out and the more money they spend hyping it and the less satisfied the customer gets, it's where our opportunity really opens up. And I think the problem is, is that I don't think any of us really understood the fact that you you need to be unified in a way that allows the public to see that. I don't think that people realize that, um, I don't give a shit how many Instagram followers you have. Most of those people aren't buying your product. They're your buddies. And if you, and if you like to bitch online all the time, what you got is a lot of followers who like drama. And so they don't do a lot. They, you got a lot of followers who really aren't following you. They're, they're, they're just like, oh my God, I love shit and I'm gonna go wallow in it. It's real. So, I, I, and, and I wanted to bring this up too because I see it within our own ranks where, I remember years ago, the fight between indoor and outdoor, and I'm like, look, what you gotta do is you, you, you don't battle it out amongst each other, you're all cannabis growers. The market determines what they want 
and they'll determine what's right and what's wrong. But what you're doing is you're stating that your belief is superior to someone else's belief and it creates a division. And the problem is that the market follows that. And what they see is a bunch of divisive behavior and it turns them off because part of cannabis for most people is escapism. So some people it's, you know, they have true medical need where they're like, without this, they, they basically will break down and be hospitalized. But for a lot of us, it, it gives us a, a, a radically different sense of self and a grounding and ability to connect to other people and a healthy escapism in a way that you can functionally work with it. And so when the mainstream sees groups have internal conflict and, and piss and vinegar behavior. I used to laugh because I remember people were competing over who was most organic. And I was like, isn't that like an oxymoron? Because isn't part of being organic being healthy? And so petty competitiveness in there is the opposite of what's needed. And what it does, it, it takes people who are following you from afar, who don't have that desire, it, it makes them say, well, why would I support them if I see the same behavior as large corporate models? What's the difference? And so you don't end up getting the buy-in. And the buy-in isn't that they just buy your product, or all of our products. It's that they want to kind of follow you and emulate what you do, which is really healthy escape from like the modern world. Growing cannabis yourself, being able to grow it at any level you can is key. You have to get people to want to be able to participate in what you do because that desire will then drive them into wanting to see what are you doing that I don't have? What are you doing that I don't do? And that, that is what normalizes a product. And it's what allows you to be able to have people get caught up with, I want to try your product. And when they see people get along and they see people behave in a way that is non-aggressive, it lets them feel safe. And I think that for the majority of people that are buyers of cannabis, I mean, I've been running stores for 13 years. So I got 13 years of retail experience in multiple stores as owner and operator. And I have been in the stores for all this time. So I've seen tens of thousands of people come through easily. And what I know is that so many of them, they, they have hard lives. They're on, they're on uh, the American uh, extraction system like the rest of us are, where you think that you're first world, but really you're third world that you're really functionally poor, but you just don't want to admit it. Well, most people in America know this, and when they come in to buy cannabis, part of the reason they're buying it is for the, the cannabis, and part of it is for cultural connection and escapism. And the, the idea that you can't get along and you can't, you can't work in some cohesive fashion and everyone's competing over who's most regenerative and who's most organic and who's not at the level turns them off because it's the exact same shit they face every day in their regular lives. And when I was in the jungle in Colombia, and I'm in, the, I'm, in the, I'm in the mountains, we're putting in a tissue culture lab up in the mountains for this uh, psychoactive operation. It was, we were putting in, it was a thousand acres of psychoactive derivative. And I had them put a TC lab up there so that it would be able, because see, Colombia has a phenomenal amount 
of floriculture. So you have incredible uh, flower industry there. So you have plenty of people there that are natives that run TC operations. And so we put a TC operation up in the mountains so that they could feed the situation so that their whole nursery situation was compressed. And then they only needed greenhouses for thrip protection to build out the starts. But you didn't have to hold mother stock and then do conventional prop. And I'm telling you, if you think you have thrip problems in America, you gotta go to Colombia. <laughs> you really have to go to Colombia. You're like, wow, this is where thrips are from. And it, it's, it's real, and so we were putting this operation in, and, and we're, we're in the middle of the night, we're laughing, and we're, we're, we're smoking Colombian pot, and I'm, and I'm chewing Colombian coca leaf, and we're, we're, we're drinking Colombian coffee, and I'm with all these old Colombian guys, and they pop up on the net, and they pop up IG, and they pop up all the little petty, pissy beefs that are on IG, and they're in hysterics, and they're like hipsters, American hipsters. And I was, for real, and I was dying, and I was like, whoa, and I, next time I get a chance to talk to the group, I'm like, you got to realize, like, what they, what they get caught up on is you getting caught up on what you're caught up on. They don't give a shit about your drama. They make $300 a month for working 60 hours a week for labor that would kill you, and what they want is they want to be able to en enjoy escapism like we do. And I think that we have an opportunity really is to stop being so competitive over who's the most regenerative, who's the most organic. It, 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 isn't it like a lifetime expression and, and it's a gradient. And so anybody who enters cannabis of any level, you as career participants, you have to be cool or you end up turning the people off and you lose that whole market segment. And it's not just for you, you lose it for other people too. You end up not being able to drive people into an awareness of this entire new, I would say a new generation of, of cultivators. Because when I, I'm, I'm, I'm 54, so I'm not a kid. I'm, I'm well past halfway to dead. But when I meet these young guys that are, you know, young girls too, you see a lot of, a lot of groups that, you know, early 20s, mid 20s that fully embraced. So many of you became like iconic figures to them that they, they follow you, they emulate what you do, and it's popping up. But they're, they're, they're the ones who want to be the producers. But the people who are the consumers, they might not, never be able to cultivate cannabis. It might not just fit into their life. And what we want to be able to do is get them to get caught up in the whole experience of better cannabis and why is it better and what's the point. And so much of it is, is, is that because it creates a, a healthier culture around it. And so much of that stuff has to come forward. So, I mean, that's my little rant on that thing. But remember, when, you th when you're throwing shit on the net, realize that the, the people who are really watching you aren't commenting. They're not following you so much. They're just trying to understand a new industry unfolding in front of them. And what they want to be able to do is feel like it's okay too. They want to they feel valid. And there's enough of us around the U.S. that are forming and merging, and it's in all these other countries I go to, it's the same thing. You're seeing this change in direction because I think people have realized we've, we've burned the planet to the ground so badly that people want to have some um, feeling of power and control that even though I may be only able to work on this, this quarter acre of land, at least that quarter acre of land is healthy. And so it's, it's really that. It's, it's small-scale development that people can see. They can emulate. It inspires them. It makes them feel better on what they do. And 
it's the only way that we're going to be able to actually differentiate the product is not just it's better smoke in a jar, but the, the culture around it is something that people want to be part of, and that is value added. Product's just product, but when you can put some mystique around it, and it most definitely adds the value, and it starts to create where people will come into facilities, they'll come into stores, and they'll request. So my store's across the street, and we have a bunch of branded shit that we sell because you have to have that in your storefront too because people request it. But the vast majority of people that come through that storefront are tourists. And what we get is what's local, what's good. We've always wanted to try local pot. What's from the local farms? What's, do you have anything from Trinity? Do you have anything from Mendocino? Is it good stuff from Humboldt County? And being able to deliver those type of things is huge, but that's what you, you realize that, that the desire is there for the public. And the, the situation is that they, they've heard the legend of better grass and then they get a hold of it. But they, they need to also realize that the people, we're not so much better than corporate because people are people. It's just that we were educated differently. And so their educational model was one of uh, consumption and acquisition. And for a lot of us, I think we were successful enough to where we could reach some form of homeostasis, a, a natural balance that we consumed enough and we acquired enough. And other than that, it was okay that your neighbor had it. But the problem is that in, in, in the capitalism model, it's so hyper-competitive that you need to have all the cookies. And that doesn't make them bad people. It's just that they, that's how they were educated. But what they're finding too is that no matter how many cookies they wanna have, you can they, all the cookies suck and nobody wants to buy them. Doesn't matter. And so that's really the thing that I've seen is that we have actually a, a true competitive advantage in the fact that our products are better because the care was applied better. And the issues that the smaller groups face is supply chain issues because you don't have control of your distribution and if your numbers aren't over a certain amount, distributors won't take them. It's very difficult to push. And the, the numerics are important to customers because when you're on a limited budget, more THC doesn't necessarily equate higher, but it typically does equate longer. And for people who are on a budget and they can only afford 20 bucks every two days in cannabis consumption, they need it to last longer. And for those people, you can't deny that it's accurate. And so what I see is we're, we're gonna educate people and I'm like, you're just running around because you're a professor. Um, people are pretty cognizant of what they're doing. Just like when people run up to you and let you know, let me educate you on what you're doing. You're like, well, I kind of have an idea what I'm doing. I'm not stupid. And so what you do is you take it offensively and it completely turns off the information exchange from that point forward. You become contentious. And now it's going to be, oh, no, I'm not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, fuck, I'll go the other direction just to prove you wrong. And that's spite. And so it ends up just wiping out any of your ability to really make the connection you need to push the products through. So, so much of this is a recognition of what's the reality of the markets for most people that were in smaller situations, they might have moved to the local dispensary and it allowed them to be able to have their product move through and even if the numbers weren't 29, um, it sold. But with the new chains and the new distro, it's so difficult to get any of these micro bottles move through and each individual is trying to create their own brand and they're trying to create their own identity. And the thing is that it takes about eight years to build a brand. 
takes like eight real years of working to get a brand. And I see people pumping all their gear and all their shit. And I'm like, me wasted money because nobody, people who know you are wearing that shit. So it's like advertising locally. Why would I advertise in my neighborhood? You already know me. So what I think needs to take place is for all of us in a sense is that you, you, you continue to stay alive. But what you do is you continue to make connections like we're making here. And you continue to share information and you continue to, to, to support. And what it does is it starts to create a situation where as the customers are able to come into these stores and they start to have more storefronts, that message is what they see and it attracts them. It attracts them because it's positive. And then when they get to consume the product, the product's positive. And that, that whole combination is really what our brand is. And for each individual farm, it's great to have an identity, but I think I'm pretty well known and I white labeled. I wasn't even gonna run my farm last year because the, the, the permit shit was so onerous that I just said, fuck it, I'm done. And I'm gonna, I'll, I'll wait another year because I just was tired of playing hopscotch and patty cake with the state. And I ended up pulling the annual like a miracle, it occurred. Like they hit me up and said, hey, we, we, we can't do any more stuff to you. Like we've run out of shit to charge you. Like literally, and I got the annual. And I was like, whoa. And so I, I get my annual and I'm like, whoa, I wasn't even gonna grow. I had covered up the plant. I, I, I thrown some cover crops down. And I just said, I'm gonna let the farm sit fallow. And I pulled the annual and a company hit me up and said, would you be willing to white label for us and grow a crop? We'll provide you with the material and you just grow it for us. And I said, totally. And someone said, but Kev, you're not going to get your, your label out there. And I said, I don't really care. What I need is to get a crop out there, and I need to get paid so that I can maintain my farm. And that's the progression. And so the, the idea that you have to be so identified so early is not as important as that you're producing good product that you can move into a system. And that what you're doing is you're creating products that are so good that the company that had me contract out typically doesn't do sun-grown. They, they're an indoor company. They don't do sun-grown. And I argued with them, you need to send your buyers up here to pick to look at the product and don't turn it into concentrate because it came out so well that it would be a, it would be a crime not to put it in a jar. And so their team came out and said, well, you're right. And so the, the company then adopted sun-grown cannabis because the quality of it was good enough to their buyers to shine. And it's not a testament to, to my phenomenal skill. Any one of you could have put that product out because really 95% of people in here are really good cultivators. What it is is this, that the realization that good quality cannabis is good quality cannabis and the buyers and the markets just need to see this in person and it starts to give you leverage. And then once that starts to take place, you start to find that there's so many farmers who produce good product that companies can come in and they can work on co-branding where they can add your name to this label in some small degree. So you do get recognition for what you do, but you're also able to enter product into a supply chain and move the product through the chain and get paid. Because that's, that's the main point of this is that as much as I love growing grass, it's the six plants I do in my yard that give me that feeling. Those are the ones I tend in the morning before I go to work. That's the plants that are mine. Those are the ones I choose because I have zero market consideration for them. I don't give a shit if anybody likes that grass. It's for me. That's my pick. That's what I do. But for the business, the business has to be clear. And the point is that 
we actually produce products that can completely move into the supply chain and be competitive because our inputs are less and because we typically didn't throw so much investment infrastructure into the operation, it allows us a different latitude. And for all of us that aren't heavily partnered, so my farm has no partners, my farm's just me, it allows me to make the decisions. And so it allows you to make good decisions based off of your experiences prior. And what takes place is that it's extremely normal. It allows you to be a farmer which was just as we had intended, like we had hoped as this became a legal situation. We had hoped it would allow normalcy. When the helicopters were flying and just raiding the living shit out of the ridges around me, for the first time in my life, sometimes I would forget they were there and I would just go back to work. And I was like, wow, that was kind of nice. It, 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 it was just so normal. And I've been doing this my whole life and I've been in public cannabis for fuck, 13, 14 years, but that was the first time that they didn't fly over my farm because the GPS indicator in the helicopter said that farm had a license. So they never, never rolled over the top of it, never did the bullshit they usually do. And it was like, wait a second, I think we're moving into normality. And so, so much of that is your, your products that you're producing through these methodologies most definitely work. And don't lose faith in what you're doing because from someone who's in the supply chain, who has a vertical operation, it's real and it works. And so continue forward with that. It, it's, it's don't cry and scream on the net. Nobody really gives a shit about your tears. I mean, you might and your mom might, but the, the public doesn't care. The, the public's struggling. And so the last thing they need to hear, I had, I had somebody who was a rapper and uh, a small rapper, small, but it's not, not so small, but not like monstrous. And he was a, like a weed rapper. And he was telling me, he's like, people aren't giving me you know, the respect I deserve from my struggle. And I said, what struggle was that? Making a lot of money out of your garage? And, and he was trying to say, like, you don't understand. I said, you're telling me about the struggle. I said, nobody gives a shit that you made a lot of cash out of your garage. That's not a struggle. You know what's a struggle? Go work a fucking shitty job and take care of four kids. That's a struggle. You're trying to get people who are living very hard lives to understand that your lack of disposable income is a fucking catastrophe in today's world. And it's not. It's your problem, not society's problem. And you end up turning off the very people who want to buy your product. And they would actually pay a couple extra bucks more for your product if you weren't crying so hard about the situation. And you stop the crying and get off your hands. I always tell people, get off your hands and knees unless you lost your car keys. If you lost your car keys, you can get on your hands and knees and look for them. Otherwise, stand up and cry at your house. And if you have, if you have beef with other cultivators, have that beef in private too because all it does is make you all look divisive and it turns people off. And I talk to so many people and I hear this constantly and I'm like, whoa, this stuff has to be clarified. The, your, your modern day craftsman and the word master gets thrown around a lot and it gets used improperly. But if you're in the trades, master just means you're competent to run a project. It means you can oversee a project. Apprentice is someone you, you come in, you have no ability to work independently. Journeyman means you can work independently, but you can't oversee a project. Master means you can oversee journeymen, overseeing apprentices, oversee a project. The vast majority of people in the room are masters. 
but they take the word in, 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 in connotation instead of denotation and they, they, over, they over fluff it or they try to diminish it. But the point is that most people in these spaces that are involved in these lectures that are cultivators can run a project and can produce a good product and can manage workers and can train new people. And so what you have to realize is that, that that's a responsibility, that rank isn't just privilege, it's responsibility. And when you get cultivation rank, when you're, you're somebody that people want to buy your product, they want to emulate your lifestyle, they want to follow your freedoms, you have a responsibility above and beyond what you're doing so that you create this, even if it's an illusion sometimes, that you aren't getting broken down by the system, you're working through it. And when it's because as soon as you're perceived to fail, in the United States specifically, it means you're a loser. So as soon as you aren't a winner, you're a loser, why would anybody want your stuff? And so it must not be good is the process. And so what I see is just like, just be quiet and you can brawl it out all you want in private and you can cry all you need to to your friends and we can all weep it out about how we all got screwed. But when you go into the public in any capacity, make sure you're laying out a really clear picture of, yes, it's difficult, but we're struggling to keep the quality straight. And people can respect that because that's what they have to go through in their own professional lives. Your boss doesn't give a shit if your babysitter didn't show up. Your boss doesn't really care if you have marital problems. Your boss doesn't care how you're treated as a child. What they care about is produce the goddamn product you're here to produce. And I think that in cannabis, we had such variability in in necessity, meaning that you could screw up and then have one good run completely straighten out your life that you, you kind of forgot that the mainstream people work off of a very minimal margin of success and that their struggle is genuine and that for, for us as cannabis farmers, it, it's where escapism providers where people they want to talk to and they, they want to go, wow, I had to spend my whole life working a shitty job. What was your life like? The last thing they want to hear is like, oh, I'm so, it's horrible. You got to let them know how happy you were. When I talk to business groups too, I always talk about collusion and price fixing because they can't do that legally, but we did. And so I tell the business groups, ah, the days of collusion and price fixing. I said, we would hold the price constant and no one could beat the price back. And people in business go, oh my God, that's just incredible. And they, sw <laughs> they swoon, they swoon in this reality. And then, and then what it does then is it allows you to be able to have some kind of common ground to communicate. So now they can realize you understand their situation. I don't call anybody Chad and Brad. I, I get on my hands and knees and pray I had Brad for a dad. Because anybody who says they, they wouldn't like to have more money in their life for free, I look at them like, are you, were you born rich? Because if you were born poor, you know struggle. And so to be angry at people that are successful, that are coming into the industry, it's the opposite. You don't have to highlight the fact that they're not qualified or they didn't pay their dues, all this other bullshit. Like, who are you, the due collector? The problem is that the people that are watching are the ones you're really trying to deal with, your customer, and they just see it as you're afraid. That if you're so afraid of the competition, then you must not be strong. And it's a perception, and you have to reverse that perception 
because that's really the psychology of marketing and purchase is that the idea that it's so good you have to try it. And I think that if we just turn down some of that stuff, what you'd have is you'd have this incredible brand that would be sun-grown, biologically based, and as you went up through the echelon, it would go all the way into truly regenerative where you were definitely trying to keep what you took to a minimal and what you give to a maximal, and that would be the, the quantifier for most money value. But at first, you, 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 can't, you can't diminish everyone in the group, and you can't beat on the factions, and you can't scream at those salt growers and those indoor guys. And the problem is, is that people from the outside just see cannabis as cannabis. They don't understand the distinctions. And as soon as you start to scream about how you're better and they're not, people look at it and they're like, wait a minute, um, I don't understand. And all of a sudden, if you're not on top, and you're, you're, not, you're not even in the picture. And so I really do believe that the marketing that we need to do is, is collaborative, and it doesn't have to be we all get together and put in some money. What it is is that we quit throwing rocks at each other in the industry in general and quit trying. I see people who built their whole Instagram world off of outing people, and I laugh, and I'm like, does anybody trust you at all? Because anybody you knew that you, that you got mad at, you told all their secrets. And I'm just like, does anybody even speak to you? Because who the fuck wants to get outed? And so no one's perfect. You're all going to make mistakes. You're all going to screw up. You're going to have crops fail. You're going to have bug problems. You're going to have business connections that don't go so well. You're all going to experience it. And you've got to bury that crap. And you've got to let people get caught up in the mystery of cannabis. It's, it's, it's bigger than us. And, it, it is, and it's been here longer than us. And hopefully it's here after us. But I think that's what's so important is that if you're, if you're trying to further what we do, the only way you can further it is if you're financially successful, if you intend to be a business. If you intend to be a personal consumer, this conversation doesn't matter. But if you're here to, to run a business and you want it to succeed, you have to create imagery that allows people to get caught up in what you're doing. And you have to be approachable. You have to be willing to take the time to answer questions from anybody. You, you, can't, you can't insult every person who wasn't in the industry because they didn't do some miracle of making legal monies. Like it, was, like it was really, really hard. Like the difficulty was so great. It wasn't. It was just you had to have a pair of balls. So if you had that, you, you, could, you could actually succeed for a long time. What you're saying to all these people is that they're not, they're not of the same level. And the problem is that you can't get them then to kind of get caught up in what you're doing. You, you're not... I call it the Tom Sawyer concept, man. Nobody's getting anybody to paint their fence. And, and I want a lot of fence painted because what it does is it gets people interested in painting fence and it gets people interested in what you're doing. And that is really what we need to do is you have to catch them emotionally. And that emotional connection is what drives... What's up, Ken? Um, that emotional connection is what drives the buy-in and... It's hard because you have, to, you have to put all your petty shit down all the time, but it's big. And so uh, rant over on that. We, we got a good day coming ahead too. We brought in – hang on one sec. I'll open up these questions. We, we, we got a good day. We were able to bring in a lot of really killer breeders. And the, the whole point about bringing the breeders in is that it's the same thing. It's not just for us to, to use the material that these people create – 
weave into operations. It's the fact that if we do this correctly, we get the people who are younger who want to do their own home cultivation. We want people to be able to grow their own varietals. We want people to get excited. We want people to be able to reach out and buy stock from people. We want people to be able to share genetics still. Commercial genetics will be different. The commercial market's going to be radically different. You're, you're, you're building material that works for commercial applications, which is crucial. But for craft applications, if, especially for the small home grower, it's irrelevant. What they want is they want just good grass. And that's the point all these years of me promoting breeders was that I tell people all the time, I, I manage operations that work in breeding, but I'm not a breeder. I do seed reproduction. I do like, I call it preservation work because I preserve stock that I like and I put it in jars and I put it in my, my fucking safe. It's stuff so that I, in case the world burns down, I have good grass to smoke because I always panic that I'm not going to have what I like. And, and it's true. Like I get scared that I won't have my varietal because I find stuff that works for me really well. And I know that when I consume that, I feel good. So I wanna make sure I try to lock it up in as many directions as possible in seed form. And I share the shit out of everything, but I need it for me too. I know that that's a massive portion of the population of people who will wanna reach out, contact people who do craft seed, who have their own unique directions in, in certain microclimates that they favored. And it allows people that are coming into the industry on a small scale to become home cultivators. If you want organic gardening to flourish, you get everybody to grow a small patch of tomatoes in the yard, and pretty soon you have an organic culture. And so that was always the point of all the breeder uh, push. It was that I, would, I had used all these people for years as partners to do projects with. I'm a, I was basically a gene trafficker. I was a, a, a large flower producer, but I trafficked in genes for decades, and then I created the first nursery model in the country that was vertical. It, it was that, that to me is where my interests lie, but I know that no one breeder owns the game because you're, you're artists in the fact that you see a picture and you have creativity, but it's not the full spectrum you need to have multiple people involved in what you do so that you're always able to see someone else's creativity bring new material to light. And so when the, the legalization was coming, I realized that it was gonna be zoning. So I went after real estate that I could work with that would allow me to function. And I even still lost my old facility because of zoning changes. Zoning changes screwed me and I lost an entire facility due to it. There was no plants that could be cultivated on that parcel because I was too close to existing businesses. And so I lost a good investment and I lost a lot of time, but it's just what it was. So even, even if, no matter how hard you might practice and how hard you might try, you still get bit sometimes. But the point was that I wanted to see all these people that I had worked with have an ability to get noticed so that they would have an ability to be moved into the future or otherwise no one would know who they were because it's hard to market, it's hard to advertise, it's hard to get um, views. And I knew that I had this unbelievable amount of attention that I really don't, still don't know how I got it, but I have it. And so I said, let me use it to highlight all these people that we've worked with for years. And that was the whole basis of that original Breeder series, was it was really meant to highlight people that I thought did good work, who I knew didn't have real estate locked up at the time. Not one of them had a straight permit, storefront, nursery, none of them. And I was like, all of them were guys that I respected 
and I had done work with them for years, and I used their material, and I referred the material, and, and we figured out there might have been, you know, $800, $900 million worth of grass grown from the clones we sold out of that shop. So over a six-year period, I might have had almost a billion-dollar impact on an industry, and, and that's real. But thank you. But that... That's not my impact alone. I'm, I'm just a purveyor. I'm a, I'm a sorcerer, not a sorcerer, but a sorcerer. And I, I find material and I move material and I put material into places where I think it'll make money for the farmer, where it'll serve function for a storefront. And all of those breeders for all those years, I had utilized their, their work. And so I wanted to be able to highlight them so that all these people that I'd been in business with for so many years did get, just get wiped out. And it turned out really well. The vast majority of them, it gave them an incredible amount of coverage in a way that they hadn't received prior. And it allowed them all to be grouped as this group of people who must be professional because for some reason they're on this platform. And it was so successful for these people that it, I, it was probably one of the best things that I ever did in terms of impact culturally. And when Josh, asked, when Josh and Leighton asked me last year to be, you know, be part of the event, they said, hey, maybe we can do another one of these series. And we did one here, and we did one in Canada, and we did one in Maine, and we did one in, in uh, Michigan. And it was the same situation. It was the highlight individuals that are breeders. And, and what I'm looking for is, is not just because you're super successful, but you're, you're about your work. It's not about how much you're producing. It's that you're, you're chasing a direction and your products are legitimately good. And what it does then is it allows there to be a cross-section for the audience to see of people who are extremely well-known and people who aren't. But it gives the, the picture that needs to be seen, which is encompassing. So in order to be a community, you have to have people that succeeded and failed, people that are poor and rich. Or otherwise, you don't have a diversity. You don't, that's, isn't that the whole point of regenerative ag and biologically-based ag is diversity? You know? So with that in mind, we were able to get a lot of really talented people to come forward again. And it's the same situation. It's individuals that you can connect with, work directions with, um, make, make uh, relationships with so you can share material and get insight as to what's moving, what's not, what worked, what didn't, how did you maximize it. You'll see people run the same varietal, same lines, and you'll find somebody that is pulling, you know, three or four full points higher on terps than you, and you're like, whoa, wait a minute, we got the same stuff, what did you do? It allows there to be really an internal education among all of us, which is what you need, because there's no, there's no educational program set up for this yet. So we're our own producers, our own educators, our own support system. And so we have a bunch of killer people coming up today. And what I'm doing too is I'm doing something different where I asked my friend Danny uh, to come in and moderate the panels. And uh, Danny and I have been friends since he's a, a young dude and he, he couldn't be any sharper in cannabis. He, he really good organic cultivator, extremely knowledgeable about sales and, and moving cannabis. And he formed his own media company to start doing interviews of the industry and he did a really good job of getting all these different groups to be covered and I said you know what maybe if I can have you come in 
and work on this, then what it'll do is it'll allow everyone to get platformed in this, what is the industry we're in? So that when people come in and take a look to see what is the industry, they get to see all the different participants and it allows them to see that it takes this many people to build an industry and that everyone in that interview series is legitimate, whether you're someone who sells flour or you're someone who works at a storefront. And I even think that they should in, in, in speak to the investment group so that people can understand what the desire is of people who are coming into cannabis with money because a lot of them that I'm meeting now are older and successful and what they want is escapism from the commercial life they lived. So I trip out, but they come up here to see me and work with me and they just want to hang out and ride around the truck and smoke pot because they wanted their whole lives to smoke weed, but they couldn't because it, they was, it was too uptight in their community and their, their husband or their wife is non-smoker, so they get a ration of shit for it and then they can come up here and hang with us and it's just like they're little kids again. And they say, look, we have money, we want to invest, but what we want is quality of experience, quality of life too. And there's enough of those people that exist that those are the investors that you really want to look for if you're looking for investment. You're looking for people who are looking for a quality of experience and what they want is really good grass to be produced and they would love to be able to have their hands touching it too to some degree. And all of those groups need to be highlighted, they need to be showcased. So that this way when the audience, your buyer, the market, whatever we want to call it, takes a look at you, what they see is this incredibly rounded, complex picture, which is what this industry is. And then it allows them to be able to understand why these people are needed, why organic agriculture is important, why there is um, such an argument between salt grown. And when they start to compare the products, they do. My buddy's daughter just graduated from the Marshall School of Business at, at USC, and she actually um, didn't get on as a, as a rowing coach, uh, like all the USC scandal. She's actually a smart kid, went to school, didn't smoke, doesn't smoke at all. And I was sitting in her room talking to her and I noticed there was a couple joints, uh, roaches sitting in an ashtray. And I said, I thought you didn't blaze. And she goes, no, I, I don't smoke. She goes, I only smoke the pot that comes out of the triangle because her father hangs out with me and brings her back. And she had tried it and it was not like what she was used to in LA. And now she is a consumer, but only from cannabis from your groups, straight up. So it was, some of it was mine, but a lot of it's from people I know. And so the thing is that this conversion occurs and it's, it's happening and we want people to be able to see the picture. And so what I realized too is that a lot of times when I'm on a panel and I'm moderating it, because I do this for a living full time, if there's a lull in the, in the conversation, I'm just jumping on that shit. Because as a public speaker, you can't have dead time. But I realized too that what happens is you end up flavoring the conversation and you end up, it, it starts to, you, you kind of steal the magic because you end up, you're too well known and people are, what are they watching you? Are they watching what you want to highlight? And so what I realized was that part of this is to, is to help nurture and build and then step back. And so Danny's going to come in and he's going to do the interviews. I'm going to be here and, and, and hang out. But I'm going to have Danny come in and do the interviews because he's most definitely a competent interviewer and he's career cannabis, so he's as legit as can be. And what it does is it allows everybody to get a little bit different perspective than the questions that I would ask and the public will still be able to go at it. But what it does is it, it just sometimes you're in the light and sometimes you're not in the light. And, and that's important to understand is that it's really about supporting an industry in whatever capacity. And when you get a chance to do so, you do so. And when it's your time to shine, you shine. And when it's not, turn the fucking light off.
You know, it makes it kind of easy. And so that's what's going down today. And what's some other stuff I wanted to talk about too? We spent some time talking over the last couple of years about classifications of cannabis in terms of perception. And this is some stuff I can only go into so deeply too because this is kind of ND. But all the stuff that we've been talking about for years on how to put cannabis into clusters and groups to make it easy for people to understand, that's all happening. And so all the stuff that we've been working on all this time about how do you get the mainstream to easily see, see cannabis in divisions and how do you explain it to them and how do you get them to have an understanding so they don't have to have this uh, turp wheel rotating in their head, they don't have to be cannabinoid scientists, how do you make it easy? This is all coming forward. You're seeing the educational systems. You're seeing companies that are extremely well-funded, that are bringing education into the mainstream to where our educational, what we do, is going to start getting accredited to universities so that kids that attend universities can actually get cannabis skill sets that give them points towards their degree. And so it's the beginning of cannabis legitimacy in academia. And I remember when the first, the first wine certificates were coming out. I remember my friend said, I'm going to go be a viticulturist. And I said, what the fuck is that? And he's like, oh, I'm going to go to Davis. They have a program, and I'm going I'm to become a, a grape, you know, proficiency in, in grape. And I said, wow, that's fascinating. Well, it, it's pretty prevalent now and very normalized. It's happening in cannabis. And so, so much of the work that I did to do these perceptions and normalizations so that it makes it easy to communicate with the public about what they're buying and what's doing and how to kind of get an idea, it was adopted. And companies are now creating the, the material and we're helping them create it so that you're, you're able to have a common conversation with all customers. And so it starts to allow there to be an understanding at a level that gets interest so that you're able to take people who aren't aficionados and help them understand how to appreciate and then how to get kids that are growing up right now to go into college and start to take this to the level that we need because I've always seen myself as a really a stepping stone. The older I got, the more I realized how limited I was because of my background. So if we all came from a back trafficking backgrounds of, of lack of normalcy, lack of legitimacy, well, that definitely flavored my whole perspective. So I'm not upset about it. I'm fine with, with the whole story, but it also limits my perspective. And I know that the people that come after us can stand on our backs and jump forward, and you want them to. You need them to jump off of your back so they can go higher than you did, and they don't have to turn around and point and say, it was from you that I got this. What you get out of it is that you get an industry that's moving forward that you can keep moving forward in. And so, so much of that work we spoke about over the last year, and, and, and for me for a number of years, it's reached fruition to where it was adopted, it was taken, and now it's being put into play. And it's awesome for all of us because it just shows that the education to get the customer to understand is taking place. And as long as we maintain our, our survival and continue to focus on what we're good at, and don't divide the groups based off of who's sexy or who's not, because really it, you're not the one to judge it. The, the people that buy your product judge it. We're all right. And you're, you're still seeing the same situations with, with genetics where you're only, you only have so many 
gene pools to work with. And I was going to bring my dog in today. I, I had this, usually I have like this little weird topic I bring up that I parallel. But I was going to bring my dog in. And I can track my dog's lineage back on probably 90% of it to about 1890. And then the rest of it, like a clock from like 1901 forward. Every single parent all the way to that dog. Um, you can't do that anywhere in cannabis in the world. Even in Colombia, in Cali, from old Ben that is 70, that have 30 or 40 lines they've worked and held, they're only 40 years old. Because 40 years ago, you didn't do that. It was just grass they grew in the region. They didn't hold it so complete. The coca changed that environment. Opium changed that environment in Asia. And so what you see is these incredibly short, periods of holding genetic material. And, and I thought that as I dug deeper into the planet, I would see more and more. And what I saw was less and less because it's the same situation here. Illegality here made us lose a lot of our material. So most, all my good shit that I've had over the years, I got lost in either armed robbery, raid, just the, the game. And so we lose all this stuff. It can never be replaced. But in all these other countries, it's the same thing. And so there's really not that much material to work with. And so when you take a look, you only have so many basic pools of material. And what's trending is, is the, 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 the hype of what it is and then who's consuming it. And for most of the people here that have worked their own varieties and lines, they're still extremely competent, comparable. I, I, I burned that you gave me the other night with my sister-in-law. It was fire. So... He's like, don't out me like that, bro. <laughs> um, but the, the point is that that's what you're seeing with, with genetics is that no matter where I go, limited populations, and no matter where I go, the west coast of the U.S. up into and then, and then pockets along Canada too, the best cannabis in the planet. It blows my mind. And I have all these people that I work with in all these other countries, I have them come to California just so they can experience the truth because they're always asking me, we're going to get into your markets. And I'm like, you're going to get buried alive. You're going to get buried alive. I said, we're going to come into your market. You're going to take over the derivative market. Israel will take over IP market because they've done so much research in terms of how to use cannabis medicinally. But... Most of these other countries, you know, Colombia's blowing up and Mexico's going to blow up. They need to develop their own internal industries to satisfy the needs of the people in the countries. And that's kind of what I help them do. And I help them put the first dispensaries in Israel so that the, they would have storefronts that would serve and then how you integrate with the people to satisfy the needs. But what you have here is this unbelievable situation where the cannabis that comes out of this area is so much better than anywhere I go on earth. It blows my mind. And I thought that I would find equivalent somewhere. And you may find equivalent resin for hash production in the Middle East, but not flour. We really are the flour. This is where flour grows best. It blew my mind. I thought I was going to see something different, and I didn't. What I said was, my God, we really are. I met a guy from Afghanistan, and he said, you guys grow the best pot in the world. And I started laughing. I'm like, you know, you're Afghani. And he's like, I know. He goes, we make better hash than you do, though. <laughs> and <laughs> straight up. 
And so, you know, what you, what you have is you're, you're building this model, and, and the problem is you've got to survive. And so we figure, you know, maybe legalization for Fed comes along in, you know, 2026. And that, that's where you're seeing some movement there. And then interstate will take place. But once you can start to get movement of our products out of the region, your price points will explode because the bottom line is it's, it's now a rare item, and it can, be, it can be marketed as a rare item. And on a global market, our production amount isn't that big. And so it allows you to work on niche batches, and it allows you to start to then build your identity as a label. But it has to be an identity built as a culture, too. It's a culture of craft. It's a, it's a culture of um, when I experience it, it's higher grade. There's, there's the emotional connection that comes to it. And I would say the difference between connotation and denotation. And denotation is the, what a word means. And connotation is what you think the word means. And I always tell people, give me a dog. And some people go, I got a little dog. And other people go, I have a giant dog. But they're both dogs. And so the connotation has to be that, in general, our production methodologies are high grade. And that as, as individuals, we care about our impact. And that we're really obsessed with bringing out really high-level product for you to enjoy. And I think that, that we just have to survive these next couple years. And I've been saying that for a minute. The transition is going to be brutal. But our products on the West Coast are unbelievably nuanced and different. And I trip out, man. The climate here and cannabis found a home. And we really do have an incredible future. And I don't think anybody should be afraid of anything coming from other countries. Because if they're going to produce it in any place cold, it's going to have to come out of extremely expensive infrastructure, which is going to, which is going to change their price point. And if it's coming out of these places that can produce massive quantities, I mean, I was talking about a 1,000-acre project, but I got flown out to scout out a 22,000-acre project. So someone's like, are you afraid? And I said, oh, no, they're, they're, they're derivative jobs. I'm not in the derivative market. I don't do derivative. I'm not someone who's trying to produce bulk product. So I have no fear of that whatsoever. And... And, and none of us should because that's not what we do. And so the main thing is that most of these places that are blowing up and you're seeing everybody popping out, you, you're seeing pictures of people on Instagram sitting in a villa talking to some guys. And I'm like, look, I was in the jungle so deep that when we got hit by those insects, we looked like we had leprosy when we left. Um, th that's not, it's not the climate you wish it was. And if you're up in the parts that are dry and hot, they have water problems just like everywhere else does. And so none of these countries are going to suddenly just take over the cannabis world and flood your market with pot that the U.S. is going to suddenly just, I don't want to buy your anymore. It's not going to happen. You couldn't even sell it in the storefront. You can't get the numbers high enough. It's going to take them years of development to be able to get the varietals that can work in these moist environments that give them enough of a chemotype yield to make it worth doing derivative. The, the infrastructure problems in these countries is phenomenal. So it isn't like they, they can just produce it and pop it over. Someone said, you know, well, Germany just bought a lot. They bought 800 kilograms. And I'm like, that's not a lot. Like when you get right down to it, 800 key is like 1,800 pounds. I wouldn't call that an exceptional buy when it's a nation. So <laughs> straight, straight up, it's not. It's not that big. And, and so, you know, what, what, I, what, I, what I see is, is cultures there, though, that want to connect with us. 
It's the same thing that cannabis cultivators around the world are cannabis cultivators. And whenever I go to any of these countries, the first thing I do is I have the, the guys that are from the streets take me to meet all the dudes that move black market work. And the, the legit guys that bring me in trip out and they're like, why do you go into the hood? And I said, because that's where the good grass is. So let's go find out what's the best pot in the area and then we'll know what expectations are. And so then it lets me meet the locals that are moving the work and then I can actually take that local and refer them to the team so that they can use them as kind of like their standard bearer. In all these countries, the idea is to utilize locals and there's no difference. I mean, I was working with guys that was all reclaimed coca fields and I met this guy that was giving me the story of how the cocaine plants they used weren't giving them enough of an alkaloid extraction so they went back up into like Bolivia and found other genomic material. Pablo paid for breeder work and they came out with a coca plant that gave them 45% more and that's the one they use now. And so I was looking at this coca plant and they're going, this is the one. And I was cracking up because they were as excited about it as we're excited about ours. I'm like, wow. And they have such a, oh, it was fascinating. They have such a different relationship with plants. It's so much more intelligent on how they use ethnobotanical medicines. And it made me realize how spiritually lacking I was in understanding this incredible relationship between plant and people. But bottom line is that we're okay. So when everyone's screaming, the, the, these other countries are going to kick the shit out of you, um, no, they're not. Uh, you you got to go there yourself and check it out. I don't mean go to the villa and hang out with the guys that are going to tell you about the job they're going to do. Actually go out to the site. And they're going to go through the same teething issues we have, and they're going to do the same development. And they couldn't have been any cooler. Like the, they, I didn't bring anything back from Colombia because I, I tell people, I said, if there's ever an airport you don't want to go through with anything illegal, it's leaving Bogota. And then come into the U.S. from Colombia, and your passport, they're like, oh, Colombia. And you know they're going to crawl up your ass. And so basically, I don't, I don't need any of stock. But they, they wanted to share their material too, and then they wanted access to our material. Because what they want, just like what we want, is things that sell and work. And then there's people that are trying to bank material for time so they can hold the genetic banking so that when we're in, more intelligent about what we're looking at at a chromosome level, we can go into those lines and pull out information. And so there's, there's two purposes, one to hold material for time so that you have a bank, the other one to find material that works for commercial sales. And so no matter where I go and what country I travel to, and, and I'm not a consultant by trade, like I, I run all my ops, but I had some downtime and I make agreements with these groups that I can't run your operation. Like you can bring me out as big picture consulting. I'll take a look and I'll vet your workers. I'll vet the team. I'll look at your project and does it make sense to me? Does it make sense? And if it doesn't make sense, then, then we'll say it. So I get to see the, the workings of these organizations really intimately and I get to see the people and I get to see the cultures and I get to see the expectations. And gosh, there's no difference, man. Everywhere I go, people want the same thing. They want some decent grass for a reasonable price and they'd prefer if the people who produced it were kind of cool. And it's that simple. And so your, your future is not compressed to where you, there's no existence for you. It's just that our supply system is a mess right now. And because these larger entities came in with huge f sums of money, 
It allowed them to operate until they turned their financial corner, but thankfully a lot of them screwed up. And it, it, it highlights, well, why are these big companies failing? What's the, and it makes the consumer have questions and then they start to investigate. So you need to have big companies expand to highlight craft and you need big companies to fail so that it shows that just because you have money doesn't mean you're smart. Just means you were smart enough to get money. And so if you look at MedMen, to me that's more like investor fraud. Because well people people jam on the, the CEO and the and the I think was the his like little second in command is that you know they they failed, but I'm like, no, they peeled sixty million out of that deal. They didn't fail. I don't think they were ever in the cannabis industry. They were in the investor fraud industry and they did really well. And so 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 they're okay. Um, they're going to go on and do something else, and, that, and that, that company will get acquired and bought and, and divided and, and restructured and remarketed. But the main point is, is that what we believed that these guys were going to come in and bury us, and that's what they believed too, that they were going to come in and bury us, it didn't work. The system is too convoluted for that type of situation, and you can't be an MSO, a multi-state operator, and have a level of efficiency because you can't centralize production and move it through supply chain. You have to have individual operations in each state, and each state has its own criteria and guidelines, and oh, it's a mess. And so I don't get involved in any of that. I stick with what I'm, I do here, and then I just work on contract in other places because I have no desire to try to spread myself that thin. And I watch them flail. And the more they flail, the better I know we'll do. And, and it's true. It's just that you, 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 you really, this is the only group you can say it to. Any other group primarily says, well, I didn't want to grow the pot. I just wanted to make money from growing pot. And for so many of us, that's what we did. I mean, I've been growing since I was a kid. So my whole dream was to continue growing until I was dead. I, that was like my fantasy. And I just realized that I would be extremely vulnerable if I only put all my eggs in that basket and I was afraid that they would somehow prohibit me from running that farm or I wouldn't be able to get zoning on that farm or I wouldn't be able to get the permit and then I would be screwed and I wouldn't even be in the industry and I don't even know how to function if I'm not in weed. Um, I've been in weed for so long that I, I'm just so anti-corporate. Not that I don't run corporations but I don't know how to have a dress code, improper language, I'm blunt. You know, I'm just not refined enough to fit into that model. And straight up. So, <laughs> but that doesn't mean we're, we're done and not at all. And so that's what I really wanted to convey this time was because we've been talking about this stuff for years and there's no information I'm going to give you about your, your, your building your, your biological bottom end or You've had plenty of experts here all weekend that are brilliant people, and they're people that I use for my own education, and they're people that I refer other companies to. So when I say, look, if you want to understand bugs, and this is other countries, and I'm like, here, Suzanne Wainwright's really sharp. I said, so look her up, and then this way, if your people aren't doing this, they're not the right people. And it allows people to get reference of what is cannabis specificity. What, a, what it's scientifically intelligent, but understand this crop specifically. And so that's how I utilize this, is that it gives me a killer education on, on things that I could never have dug that deep into because I'm digging into my own stuff. And so that's what I'm trying to bring today is that understand that by continuing the production that you're doing and just refine your process and tighten up the work, you produce a product that is most definitely not repeatable 
in scale. And the, the industry will straighten itself out because thankfully the politicians who have their arms secretly in the cookie jar aren't getting cookies. And so they're going to restructure this to make it work so they can get paid. And as a result, we'll get paid too. Because the, the, if they had succeeded, we'd been screwed. But because they failed, they have to change it to make it work. And that allows us the opportunities to still exist. And as long as you can run an efficient system and you can produce material that is quality and you're able to work as a combined group where you don't have to get together, you don't have to form a single collective, you don't have to have your name on a piece of paper together. You just have to have a common message that I'm part of a group that tries and our desire is to produce high-level cannabis and we're doing our best. And that is pretty reasonable and the expectations then are reasonable and then usually you'll exceed the expectation when they, when they touch your product. But when I'm, when I'm picking up, I go, to, I go to stores and buy product just to see what it looks like and I'm like, I'll, I'll go spend that money every now and then for an $80 bag. So I'm like, how the fuck do you get 80 bucks for an eighth? <laughs> and I'm serious and I open it up and I'm like, wow, the branding is unbelievable. But the herb is just regular salt grown pot. So it's just, just regular pot. And we always laugh, and when, and, but you know, I, I still, I'll still go try once in a while because I want to see is the hype real and how do you create the hype. And we don't have to emulate that methodology, but you kind of have to in a sense to where people are interested in what you do and people are interested in, in how you live and people are interested in how we lived. And when people are screaming, you know, I'm a defender of the plant, and I'm like, you didn't get paid? You didn't like the money too? I'm sure you did. Make sure you put that out there because people who hear that story, um, they're like, oh, you're a charity? All your money goes to charity? Oh, no, no, I keep a bunch of it. Um, it, it kinda, it, it's kind of hard to explain to someone that dichotomy. So what they want, they want to hear is, is some reality, and you don't have to be ashamed of it. I don't trip on the fact that I, I, I enjoyed getting paid. It helped. My, my children like me more because I could feed them. <laughs> but that's real, you know, like, that's just real stuff. And so that's the, that's the point of a lot of this stuff is that it's to understand that the stuff that you're learning here is applicable as it can be. No matter what country I go to, it's applicable there too. The quality of the products coming out of the diversity of these farms is superior. It just is. And, and, and I don't have to give you, a, I call it a verbal blowjob. I don't have to give you a verbal blowjob. It, I'm one of you too, and so I, it lets me know that my products work, and when I, put them, and I put them on the table, companies can evaluate and accept and then move it into the supply chain as that product, and I don't think I'm the best cultivator in the room by far. I, I'm, I'm competent, but th there's so many people in this room that are really gifted that that just means there's a lot of us, and they're not just here. The Michigan group impressed the shit out of me last year. The New England has impressed the shit out of me too. And I'm a New Englander, but I didn't expect to see the people go so organic. You know, where, where, where New England is like, it, it's, it's an aggressive environment. And I got to see this radical change in people that were like 28, 29, that had their own farms. And they really were stewards of the land. And it's, it's across the US, you're having these pockets of people developing people who love to grow good cannabis people who are really soil conscious they're really quality conscious and they're human conscious 
And I think that's the brand that we have to really work on and develop. And you don't need anybody to run it, nobody to take your lead and somebody to organize you and get paid because that's another scam. It, it's really about all of you understanding that your impact as a total is what really resonates. That each one of you are viewed and seen and that each little piece makes up the whole. And that ability to get that message across is huge because that's what's going to get these products into the mainstream. It's what's going to get people to see. It's going to get stores to want to demand. You, you'll eventually have distribution that focuses on this as we get this into the Southern California markets and you get the people educated on different um, production methodologies, they'll start to be able to ask for them. They'll be able to request it when they come into the store. Is anything done this way? Because I've had such good experience with other products from that. And that drives all of our values higher. And it's the only way to do it because nobody can afford to market their products effectively unless you're a vertical chain. And, and, I, I, and I've been pushing a lot of business for a long time, so I know this firsthand. And that's why I did so much promotion for free. I did all the advertising for all the brands for free. I paid for it because I knew I had the money. And I knew that what I wanted was I wanted the people that I worked with to do well because I depend on you to give me products that the people want to buy. So it's not like it's I'm a charity. It's just that I'm really cognizant of the fact that I need you. Without you, I can't sell anything. And if I can't sell your product effectively, then how am I going to sell my product effectively? Because I'm trying to produce the same product you're producing. So it forces me then to change my model, which is contrary to what I want to do. In terms of cannabis farming, this is what I want to do. And I had the opportunity to do operations all over the place, and I don't because it doesn't fit my ethos of cannabis cultivation. And it doesn't mean that my ethos is right. It just means that it's right for me like many of you. But what we know, though, is our pot is really good. And when you break it out at a place, you can, you can, you can get people to agree. And that's something that really has to have happen. And anything else going on in the world that's interesting? Tissue culture, we'll, we'll cover that one real quick too, man. TC blew up. And so I've been saying this for years. I did my first TC work as a, like a liaison where I was, I was the node farmer. I was providing nodes to a guy that had his own lab in 2007. So in 2007 is when I did my first TC, like R&D, and I saw the difficulty, and he was brilliant, and I saw the difficulties he had, but I saw the success of, it was, it was a white Russian cut I had that he got the formulation right. And so all his hormonal formulations were flawless on that one. He couldn't dial any other one in. And he had the ideas of doing encapsulated um, plantlet form to where you could put them in stasis and then crack them in. All that came true. That's all happening right now. The, the TC revolution is here. And the beauty of it is, is that with the amount of viruses that are moving through cannabis, it allows you, and especially as the prices keep coming down, it allows you to bank your core material and not lose it. Because I've lost a lot of stuff to problems in the past that we just couldn't, couldn't deal with. And it just ate the plant, and you weren't able to propagate it and keep it, and so you lose the varietal. So I think I have maybe like 60, 68 varietals in vitro right now that's like my old collection. I had it completely scrubbed, it meristematically cleaned, put into vitro, held in a lab so that it's preserved. And now we have that bank to dig into to look. And then my nursery, we went into a different model where we were able to, because the nursery business is no joke, like that is a volatile one. 
and everybody down south built these mega operations and I watch them dumping where they advertise clone, then they advertise teen, then they advertise one gallon and then they're out of business. Because they, yeah, straight up, uh, you, you, this is, they have a problem. You produced 11 million plants and you only have uh, sales of 100,000. You have a problem. So the nursery business is aggressive and what we did is we tied in with a large company as their sole nursery. So it works, and it's, it's, not the, it's not the model that I like because I really like the one I had, but I also don't like bankruptcy either. And so what we have is we have a, tiss a tissue culture facility in Sonoma that scrubs the material that comes through the breeding operations in the bay, and then it comes to us, and then we build it out, and then we then supply it to the farms that are tied into that company. So it allows me this streamlined process, but it's all really clean and it's, it's, there's zero pathogenic problems. But it requires a tremendous amount of work. And so when I see people going like, we're going to get TC stock and then we're going to conventionally propagate, I'm like, you're missing the point. The whole point with TC prop is that you can get the price down to where you can basically get a clone for four bucks. And so you could get a clone for four dollars delivered that when you put it into your medium, it, it'll, it'll jump an inch and a half in a day and a half because it has zero restriction on its flow. There is no, all these viruses basically restrict your vascular bundles. You end up having clog, almost like arterial clog. And so you don't transport sugars up and, up and down the, the, through the xylem and the phloem correctly. And so the plant can't stack tissue correctly and so it becomes weak and underdeveloped and it doesn't have enough uh, like say lignin to really hold up under any kind of weight you see the branches peel off the sides you see incredible propensity for uh, insect problems it's because it's it's inhibited with problems scrubbed plants don't do that and so the thing is if you're going to get into commercial cultivation or you're going to run a cultivar yourself and there's enough companies that are popping up now just vet them vet them because there's good companies and there's ones that are they're not good not good means they're going to kill your shit and not scrub it because they all do the same thing, but some of them definitely are better scientifically than others. So you see a lot of people coming in from different industries, but as, as an overall, I'd say people coming in from the fruit tree industry are better. Fruit tree propagators are better than strawberry propagators. More diversity, more difficult propagation. So the people who run those operations have a more diverse skill set. So for all the labs I mess around with, I notice that there's certain, all, all brilliant, everybody's PhD, everybody's got 15 years doing some kind of large propagation. When you meet the people that really have their shit together, you get to see what scientific propagation looks like. And it's mind bending. But the point is that what it does, it allows you in time to take varieties that you have and bank them. And you don't have to license them out to them to where they, they're gonna put it into play. And you can if you want to, because that's business too. But you can, you can have material held and then you can also have material that you have developed come back to you in form so you don't have to have your own nursery operation if you run by clonal. And a lot of people run seed and, and my desire has always been to run by seed but I need consistency or my variation in the COA screws my sellability. And if I have an outlier that they test when they go into that 50 pound bundle and it's a 13 and everything else is 25, I'm screwed because the, distribu the distributor will not take your product. So there has to be these, these understandings of the reality versus the fantasy. But in time comes when we get lines that are a little bit more stable in terms of chemotype distribution in population, then none of this stuff will be needed. But the fact is you can use it right now 
and the price on some of this stuff is going to be cheap. And so for conventional propagators, I tell people, if you're going to get in the nursery business, be very careful right now. You're about to compete with some really intelligent, well-done propagation models, and you, 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 they're going to get you. But you have to understand how to use the tools so that you can find stuff that you have. For, it's like 150 bucks to get a pathogenic test. So you can go send a leaf analysis out, find out you have virus. And if you do, scrub the plant. It was 10 grand to scrub a plant, then it was six grand, now it's down to like 3,500. Give it a year or two, it'll be down to 1,000. And once you get to those, those prices, it's worth it because to, to scrub a plant meristematically is time. It's the, it just takes time and that's why it, it's, it's such an issue. Anybody with a laminar hood and some August solution can, can do microprop not necessarily correctly, and they're definitely gonna struggle with meristematic prop. And then the ability to load the plant with hormones in the direction that it needs to be able to move correctly, and the ability to use those services to hold material so you're not having to bank your own stock, because the, the cost of having to have a small indoor operation connected to your facility makes it kind of tough. If you're under full license, and you're an outdoor cultivator, how are you running your indoor nursery unless it's at that facility with the, the building that's required to have it? You can't keep it at your garage, so that's not legal. And so I'm not someone who's caught up in what you do legally or illegally. I'm the last person that can point a finger at that. But I try to always tell people, look, if you're gonna be part of this, this track, bless you, if you're gonna be part of this system, what you need to be able to understand is that some of these limitations we have, they cause real problems. And so the, the, the TC world is exploding around you and it is most definitely real. And it's important to understand you're, you're seeing the, 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 the diving into the chromosome is pretty fascinating right now where people are really unraveling this and it's, you're gonna see it and see, I figured I talked to him six months ago. So two and a half more years and you will see a revolution in plant breeding. And that's how, that's how long it's gonna take because they have to open up the population. So I took a look at a GMO and I got to see a couple thousand of them opened up and selfed. So I could see all the expressions of the GMO and it was crazy to see the whole chem side layout and the, and the whole cookie side layout and how many variations there were within each one of those subsets. It was mind bending. And in those plants, they don't pull the outliers out to start to work the populations. So, you know, you're getting to see the future unfold in front of you and the, the whole CRISPR stuff, people are fascinated with it, but I was looking at a tech article the other day and they figured out how to make a, a, a CRISPR tool for like under 20 bucks. And it lets you electrify the cell wall so that you can insert other genetic material. And so I know that people are gonna start doing their own CRISPR work at home. And to me, you know, I, I, don't, like, I don't like CRISPR tech because you're, you're inserting and erasing and the problem with that is that you, you can pull things out of the plant that are, are there that I know that we need. And I don't think we're smart enough to really erase portions and add portions. So I don't think genomic breeding is bad at all, but I think genetic modification is. I don't think we're smart enough. We're smart enough to look. We're not smart enough to take away. So, but you're going to see it. It's coming right now. And so the same thing. It's just to be aware of these, of these changes. And... I think that's about all the stuff I've been popping around. So let's see, anybody got any questions? What you got? No, the whole point of, of, of auto is that it's not psych, uh, cyclical regulated, that, it, that it, it goes off of its own age. 
And so what's the point? But what I am seeing, though, is autoflower that's really pretty nice. Like I'm seeing autoflower improve dramatically. And I saw somebody this year do a crop of auto. And because it's hardier and it, ha it seems like it has less nutrient requirements, too, they were able to pull an auto crop out. And it was the easiest crop the guy ever ran, and he was able to sell it at a killer price right in the, in the, the hot part of that, that right before the fall comes in. And it changed my opinion on autoflower, and it was actually palatable. I typically don't like autos because I can't stand that cloudy, muddy, the ruderellus just doesn't, it has never done it for me. And I had access to ruderellus forever. I never liked it. it something about the high just turns me off. But they're doing a really good job. And so, you know, if, if you could get ruderellus, if you could get these hybrid seed, you run early in the season because it's tough. It lets you get a crop. It lets you then run your crop a little bit later in the season, but it lets you get two cycles out of a, out of a non light dep operation because light dep, any kind of light manipulation in California, they consider it a, uh, another category of permit. So it's twice the cost per square foot. So anything, any, any way you, you don't have to have any electric lighting at all to get twice the cost. All you have to do is break the light cycle mechanically, which is a depth tarp. And so to me, the autos are really good for catching market windows where there's a need, and then you put out your quality product so that you fit your niche. What you got? Oh, you only need, you really just need a node because they're going to they're gonna open up that, that node and they're going to pull out a meristematic cell. It, it's so small, you can't see it in the Petri dish. Meristematic, M-E-R-I-S-T-E-M, meristem, A-T-I-C. Very small piece, just has to be living. They can't, they can't resurrect dead material. Has to be alive. And so... A chunk. No, you can't, you can't sequence anything that isn't living. But what you can do is you can take a look at it and see it on a chromosomal level and, and, and figure out what was in it, but you can't recreate it. And, and plants that are, are, are problematic, once you scrub them, you will get back to the potential that was there. And I used to believe that genetic drift wasn't real and, and really what, what they call it is like linkage drag. And it just means that epigenetically plants adapt over time and they adjust. And when the chromosomes move, because everything's kind of connected in chain, they can pull and push and move traits subtly. So over time, all things change through any type of propagation. So subtle changes over time. And so tissue culture does have an impact but so does regular propagation. They both have an impact, and we know that now. Like we're, we're, as the science comes out, I adjust my view as proof is made. So as there's new proof, I say, okay, my hypothesis is flawed. It's kind of correct, and you just have to admit that.
and I think that's hard for a lot of people is that you're right when you're right and then you're, you're not right when you're not right. So scrubbing plants helps you out and you know, ideally over time you really would have lines that you worked from seed form that were containing the genetic information of survivability from each generation at the location that you did them at. Like to me, that's the best way of doing this because that's really how plants adapt. Hang on, there's one guy in the back who's been holding up there. One second, I got you. Don't worry, I got you. Yeah, shoot. Well, they don't tissue culture those. They just do it. They, they don't have to do a tissue culture. What you're trying to do is just open it up. And you can go into an in vitro situation. And if, if but if it's, what I did, and I've tried everything on my own, but I just noticed that like from what I learned from the regen group was that sprouted CTs work really well for cracking old seeds. Better than gibberellic acid, better than any other method is to get that hormonal solution that's, balanced applied to the seed so you just soak it so that it imbibes it and then because there's going to be sugars present in that solution you're using you'll have what happens with the old seed is I can open it up with gibberellic acid so as a GA3 solution I can crack anything and get it to extend cellularly but I don't have enough sugar reserve for it to sustain until it forms so the cotyledons are depleted of sugar so I can open the plant but it instantly dies because there's nothing to eat so there's no way to get, there's no, there's no root system established to draw from the media. The plant's working off of those cotyledons and it's then the first true leaves pop. So I can blow anything up with gibberellic acid, but I can't get it to sustain. And so the sprouted CTs work pretty well. You just gotta scarify, scarify your seed pretty good. So I make a little container out of a, like a butter tub or you know, a, a cream cheese or something, a little container. And I line it with 120, um, grit, uh, bless you, 120 grit sandpaper. And I just throw the seeds in that and shake it around a little bit and that kind of scarifies it and opens up, this, up, opens up the, the, the permeability. And then I just soak it so that it fully imbibes that sprouted CT and just some alfalfa seed. And you take it and you let them extend out, blend that shit up and that's the mix. That works pretty good, like it really not bad. Um, the in vitro seed is you, each company would have their own pricing on it and did they get their formulation. And what you want to do is you want to talk to the company you're working with and have them show you some of their success. Because I've had companies mess with some of my old stock like, you know, two years ago and they were flailing. And what I realized is that they had the ability to open it but not the ability to extend it. They didn't have their hormonal formulations heightened to where they were able to dial in the balance needed. And so what I tell people is just hold the seed until this is better. Don't be in a rush to crack the old seed. It's old, it's not good, it's, it's just hold it. And you're gonna be able to get it into an in vitro situation in time that will absolutely be able to open 95% of that. And some stuff is just too far gone, it's just what it is. But if there's anything remaining in it that's viable, they can pull it. Just hold your material and then start taking a look at what labs people are using and ask to see what other farms are using them. I get asked that all the time. Who used this service and what was their result and did, was it okay? And so, you know, word of mouth and boom. Where's the skunk? The skunk, I took the skunk. I know I'm digging into it now. But what I did is when I, when I shifted the nursery operation, 
I didn't have the ability to mix the operations because otherwise what we know we have is multiple stock in a facility that's designed for a single entity. And so what I did is I took that material and I, and I licensed it through a lab and so that that can have them start to open it up and start to look at it in population form. And that's where it's at. And it's just what you realize with a lot of stuff is that we're in a rush, but none of us are going anywhere. And so I'm not in a rush to get it out. I just know that if I go dig, I'll find. And what I'll find is I'll find all kinds of interesting stuff that I couldn't have found. And I realized that, you know, like our population size that we used to use was decent, but the population size that you can do now, you know, good 10,000 plant sifts. And I mean 10,000 in one spot. Not 10,000 spread out over 50 farms in the region. 10,000 in one spot so that you can really compare apples to apples. Because otherwise, all the other variables impact that, that study. So if I'm trying to do research, you have to hold all variables constant. And any change in that changes the experiment. And so for me, I realized that when we started making these business decisions of like, what's the real business we're in? Survive. Um, it was to take this material that I've been digging through and to allow a larger entity to look at it so that the material can come back out and then I'd even license it to myself, meaning that I don't mind. If you had something that was valuable, I'd pay you a surcharge to run it. Just like in the old days, people paid huge money for clones or you had some kind of you know, conditions of use. No difference now. You, you, you want a McDonald's, you license it and you run McDonald's. And I don't eat at McDonald's, but we're using that as an example of a licensing deal. And that's how I see a lot of the stuff that's coming out is that some of these things, especially if they're intelligent about how they release it, where when I used to release certain types of material through the nursery, I would release limited amounts of it because I knew that the value would be higher. And so I would, and I would kind of release to people I knew that I wanted to see do well. And I'd be like, this is the one that's going to make you money. And I'm only going to release it to 10 farms. So this way you're able to actually make money. And then next year I'll open it up to a general population. So I don't see it any different as that. And, and that's the hunt is to go look through. And what I'm not looking for is I'm not looking for just that terp. What I'm looking for, because most of the stuff that had those terp profiles had leafy, shitty morph morphologies and had low numbers. And so you, I don't care how incredible the smell is, the numbers prohibit the sale. What I need is the skunk that I had that had all the boxes checked that I lost in a raid. Like that's the, I know what I'm seeking and if it's not that, it won't work. It just won't work. The, the realities, we're not there yet. In 10 years, the public will be able to work with things that don't fit that visual. They'll be educated enough to know that once you roll it in a joint, who gives a shit what it looks like on Instagram, right? Straight up. But that, that's not happening today. And so that's what's going on with that project. What I'm, the only thing I'm doing right now is kind of cool is I got some killer uh, Afghani stock that was from Russia. And I'm just doing a, a little open population myself on it so I can then go through that stuff. But it's just killer. You know, really earthy, dirty smells coming off the plants. Just funky, exotic, cool shit. And, I, and that has nothing to do with commercial. That's purely because I like that kind of pot. And so that's what I'm working on in my own. And it's small. I mean, I'm talking like tent size breeding project open pollination so I can hold the material and I can get a bigger collection of the material and we can look at it at population size. 
But that's the only thing I'm doing because it fits my world. And my farm, I didn't do any breeding on it whatsoever. All I did was run the products I was given so that I could focus on the business to make sure I could pay and keep the farm alive. Like just really straightforward, honest, um, oh no, uh, this is important most. And then everything else can wait because I don't, I'm not going anywhere. We're not in a race. We're not racing anybody. That's the point is that they, they, made, they made us feel like we were in this incredible foot race where if you don't run right now, you're going to die. No, you're going to run so fast, you're going to fall down and break all your teeth out of your mouth. What, what, what you need to do is, is just keep walking down the damn trail and you're going to get there sooner or later. And the fact that you're trying to develop what you're doing is the truth because you can't force plants to, no matter what they do, you can't force them to, can't force them to be anything different than they are. What's that? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that it's, it's a gradient where you... Well, no, no, like what I learned from what I learned in Colombia was that cannabis was the, the feminine and, and coca was the masculine. And then they, they said that in food, it's quinoa and corn. So quinoa is, quinoa is the feminine, corn's the masculine. So in, in their culture, in terms of how they view plants, there's this feminine masculine balance in all things. And so that cannabis was the feminine, uh, coca was the masculine. And I took a look, I said, I got you. So we, we've, already, we've already removed part of the population because we're only cannabis. So it's the only, really, only plant we're really utilizing from that basket out of the, out of the rainforest. But I think that what, what ideally is that you, you work where you can right now so you can stay alive. And then the idea was always to develop varieties from seed form that fit what I, what I call like the Appalachian model where everyone that's within a geographic sector that's similar can produce things that fall within that range and what it does it allows you to have enough product to fit the market demand but you're able to work with it from seed form which is really the to me the most regenerative because you're, you're using the least amount of input and so the way I understand regenerative is we're trying to reduce inputs we're trying to sequester carbon and we're trying to reduce input so that what we're doing is having the least impact and Seed is the best way to go about that. But right now, for a lot of people, you will go bankrupt if you do that. And that, I don't care what philosophy, that one doesn't work. You can't lose the farm. You can't lose the land you're on because you weren't willing to use, what's up, Big Luke? You weren't willing to use the products that were available to you right now. And it may not be perfect, but it's not so morally reprehensible that you can't do it. So a clone doesn't mean you've sold out. It just means that you're aware that the market wants that. And once the market accepts you, where they know who you are, oh, you have a lot of latitude. You know what I mean? Like I was able to introduce a tremendous number of varietals. In, and it's funny too, I use the word varietal, and it really means single source bottle of wine. But just like someone was calling strand and strain, and it, we all understand what the words mean. And so there has to be a vocabulary that's clarified, but the main point is people become little grammar Nazis and it, it, it's not important. What, what's, get the point across. 
And the point is that people will trust you if, you if they succeed with you. So if someone buys your product and they like it, they'll have trust in you and the product. And then you'll be able to start to introduce them into other stuff and say, hey, what we're doing is we're trying to go into this form of seed. So there's subtle deviations in batch. Expect them. And they'll be okay with it if that's what, what they're told. But at first, if they get a batch and then it's not the same batch, they become disappointed. And once they're disappointed, they turn the back on you. And what did someone say to me? Someone said, money's like a beautiful woman. When you turn your back on her, she never comes back. And that's really important. Like, do not turn your back on that reality because right now you're having to survive to keep the land alive so that you can then go that route. And to me, the long-term goal for all of us would be to work off of stabilized seed lines that we used and developed and worked regionally. So the only stuff that you could get that fit because it was optimal for here, your location will have stuff that's optimal for you. We shouldn't have to compete. We shouldn't be competing with the same clone. My gelato is better than your gelato. And it's like, who gives a shit? It's all gelato. So, you know, when people say people want heritage strains, I'm like, really? A white runs won the Emerald Cup. Um, what, what heritage strain is that? And it, they, what they want is what they, what they want. And you just have to acknowledge that first, that the customer dictates your reality more than you do. Or you're not in business. You're in personal consumption, and that's okay. But your product needs to move to a market. These people who dictate that reality have demands. You have to satisfy the demand. Once you satisfy the demand, they're very malleable. They will bend to your will once they get what they want. But when you tell them you're going to bend to my will, they tell you basically, fuck off. And they abandon you, and you are forced to go to business. And so to me, that's the first consideration. But how do we balance that situation? Male and female, open pollination, normal preservation, selected development for lines that work. And you'd end up having enough people working together where you really have creativity come out. It takes all of us, man. It, it's, it's too complex. Nobody's smart enough to do it on their own, like straight up. And, and I meet some of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I still watch them struggle. So I know that there's, it never ends. It, it requires many people to solve the riddle. And that's the one. First, survive. And then work towards stabilized seed line. Because once you do that, now you're out of that entire production loop. What you got? Good question. Um, Someone do me a favor. Somebody, if you can keep track of whose hand went up and down first, it'd help. Because <laughs> I feel like I'm, I, always, I always miss out on people. What do you got? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways is with the quality and everything we that we've been talking about and regenerative and all that. Another thing that I've seen that has to do with our community is all of our talents and in a more serious way. Like the way we're now dealing with cannabis in a very professional, maybe almost professional craft way. How could in your vision But that's one of the ways, it, it's, it's cultural, but if you're, if you're a, a, a potter and you do beautiful ceramics and, and people are turned on to your ceramics and you're also a cannabis farmer, 
it, that's just, it's just another f way of getting people to recognize who you are. I'm involved in all kinds of different stuff other than cannabis. Yeah, but it, it doesn't, it's a, we always focus on it, to, you know, Emerald Triangle, Emerald Triangle, but the fact of the matter is, is that there's, it, it, it almost starts, we're the most well-known, but it doesn't mean that we're like the purest or that we're the best. We have the greatest concentration. We definitely have some of the greatest climate, but the people I met in Michigan where every bit is about it, the people I met in Israel, all the countries I go to there, everybody there about it, they're real too. It, so you don't want to you don't want to diminish them and, and have this competition over who's most real or what you want to do is you want to allow people to be able to be caught up in you and so if you do other things that are in your music and people meet you through music it allows you then to be able to have a conversation and then you can introduce cannabis into it but everybody's trying to always do this hard push on their product you know upsell upsell constant never-ending self-promotion and you turn people off they get tired it's Amway. No, but that's what I'm saying is it becomes an Amway push. And, and, and that's what I believe is that what you need to do is, is be your normal self and in normal conversation, people will see that as stable because it's rare. And then it then allows you to introduce what you're doing and other stuff. Someone's, someone's breaking an arm off back there. All right, yeah, we go, like, I'll give you one, two, two more people then I gotta roll it up. Josh is kicking me off. What's up, Dan? Uh huh. The the first part about it is is like when I look at anything, any business operation, I take a look to see what's the the who bleeds if it fails. So I won't work with you if it's someone else's money. So any job I go to isn't, I have to meet the investor who is going to lose the money because then I know if they screw up, it hurts them too. So I like business partners that bleed if it goes south. And that means that, that there's, there's clearly punishment for failure. And I like to use lawyers because I, I'm not intelligent in law. I've been involved with the law uh, for a really long time. But I've always relied on attorneys to help me with that situation. And so what I do is I have my attorney look at any contract I do, period. I don't care what it is. If I go to a business deal, I'm with an accountant. If I'm trying to talk about money, I'm with my bookkeeper. And so I bring people with me so that I, and I, and I think I'm pretty clear about what I'm doing, but then I can ask, am I clear? Am I misreading this? Am I not understanding what's being said? And, that, and that's the truth of it. It's, it's contractual. And a lot of it is faith and trust. Like, do you trust the people? And what happens is people get desperate and they do shitty deals. And to me, anytime you get screwed, most of the time it was too good to be true. Like I know from where I'm from, I was from a place where crime was rampant and confidence theft was unbelievable. You can't be screwed in a deal if you don't participate in it. And the only time you get screwed is if it seems too good to be true. I'm going to get paid a lot of money for this. Is it worth that much? No. You're going to get screwed. <laughs> and, and, and that's how I see it. And so that's what I would do is it's just the problem is, is that you almost have to, the way we, would, we did it prior was when I had legal problems in the past, I said, look, I'm about to become the test case for this shit. How about a couple of my friends chip in some money and we can, we can, 
get the information together and you'll benefit from me taking the beating, but we'll all be able to pay for the attorneys to get the education. And what it did is it let that information be shared by multiple people so they were pretty clear as to the ramifications. The lawyer was only representing me, but I had a few of my friends put the money in for the defense on that so that we could use it. I realized, I said, wait a second. I said, I'm about to go through a war on this shit, but if you guys can help me out, then we can have the information come back. And what it'll do is it'll give all of us the knowledge we need on how to operate. So I'll get my fingers cut off, but I won't have to use all my money and you won't have to get your fingers cut off to get the skills. And that's how I would go about it then is I would I always, always use your attorney. I don't care what contract I do, I have my attorney run through it. It doesn't make a difference. I never do anything contractually without my attorney going through the paperwork, period. And if they feel uncomfortable, have them restructure the contract. And if they won't restructure the contract, you should feel uncomfortable. And well, so you're the last one. And you can catch me, just catch me right after. Just catch me right after. I'll be around. So if anybody got any questions, they want to chop it up, I'll be here. But this is the last one on the stage. I use the attorney that's ideal for the situation. So if, if it's going to be contractual agreement, I want someone who specializes in contractual agreement. It doesn't need to be cannabis. Contracts are contracts. I want the best. If it's criminal, I want criminal. If it's contract, it's contract. If it's if it, whatever the speciality is. And what I do is I ask my attorney because I have my own attorney that I've had for like, well, he just retired. So I had to shed a couple of tears last week because I'm going to miss this guy. But he's been my consulary for the last 25 years. So what I do is I ask him, I said, hey, I got a thing going on. Let's take a look at this. Are you the right guy for this? And he said, no, let's go find someone who specializes in this. And I let the attorneys find me the attorney. I don't look for the attorney. I let the attorney find the attorney. Just like if as a cultivator, if someone was to ask a stranger, find me a good cultivator, they'd find anybody. But if you go to a good cultivator and ask them, I need someone to do this project. And you're like, I got you. I'm not the right person, but this person is. You're vetting and, and just let your attorney that you trust and use that you have a financial relationship with, let that person help guide you. Thank you. You're welcome. I think that's it, man. Oh, one thing before I forget. Um, and thank you for the applause. I just hate to cut it short. I would take it again. But um, I brought in um, a bunch of this uh, Roberts Creek Congo. And so I brought some plants in, but I brought in a bunch of branch material. I went, into, I went and grabbed it out of the plant. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut a bunch of it up, and I'm going to wrap it in Ziplocs and bare root it. And so uh, you're welcome to grab some of these plants. The Roberts Creek was uh, – uh, uh, someone gave it to me as a, as a gift, and I was just so, I was so happy that I had it. And then the individual who released it into the world hit me up privately and said, hey, I'm the guy that released it into the world. And he said this was from – uh, seeds out of the Congo. It was taken to the Canaries and bred into an F4 probably 20 plus years ago. It moved into Canada. And he said, I would love if you shared this into the world. So it's a really, really beautiful. It finished for me uh, November 7th up on the hill. It's just really killer ass, clean, clear, lucid, good pot. And so I have... Um, a couple in soil here, but I'm going to cut a bunch of these up while this is going on, and then you guys can come grab them up. And, and just like last year when Josh kicked out all these killer plants, all I asked was, look, I'm going to give them out. Just share them. 
Because otherwise what you're doing is you, you little genetic hoarders. Um, no, straight up. And, I, and I, I've moved more plants than anybody I know. I'm like, you need to move the plants among each other so that what you have is you have stock to play with, tools to use. And what it does is it allows mainstream people to see a different behavioral pattern because that's your branding, that you're willing to share information, you're willing to share the tools, you're willing to be a human being. And, and that's the part that makes this type of cannabis, this type of culture applicable. So thank you very much. Yeah.